0: Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Word of warning, please be aware that this episode contains details of sexual violence and abuse that you may find distressing. Brotherham in the UK is known for the gangs of men who abused, raped and even impregnated young girls. Their secrets came crashing down when a few brave girls stood up and told their story to the press and the police. Sammy Woodhouse is one of these brave women. After years of coercion and manipulation by an older gang member, Sammy was left with her life in pieces. She became pregnant and had a child at 15, 16 years old for the ringleader and was involved in armed robberies. Sammy now uses her voice to help other women and children who may have experienced similar traumas. Focusing on helping to get the crimes pardoned which the victim was coerced into committing. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Thanks for agreeing to to speak with me today. I mean, I haven't read that much about your story. I, I obviously am familiar with the connection with, with and and what happened over the last few years. I'm not up to date with with where that's at, um, if it's at anywhere or whether there are still sort of a legacy left from everything. But just just set the scene for me. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Sammy. Let's start with your, your childhood, you know, the sort of person that you are, where you grew up, what life was like for you as, as a young person. That's probably a good place to start, if any. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. So um, I grew up in Rotherham, um, about two and a half miles from town centre, and I had, um, from my memories, quite a great childhood. I was I was very fortunate, and I lived with both my parents. I've got two older sisters as well, and as a child, I was confident. I was bubbly. I um, had lots of friends. I was good at school. But I was more of a practical kid and I, I just couldn't sit down and I just loved to dance. Um, so, you know, I'd, you'd always kind of find me doing a cartwheel or the split somewhere here or there. And I started dancing when I was about four years old and I did that right up to about the age of 11 or 12. And I would go all around the country, you know, with my teammates and we get a little mini bus and. We'd get up really early in the morning, we'd go and have our hair and makeup done and we'd all get in, in the boat and we'd all chant our songs on the way to the competition. And our team, uh, we was called the Diane Bennys British Aerobic Championship Squad, which is quite a mouthful to say that to <laughs> <finish>.
0: <laughs> Was it a professional <laughs> dance squad, was it?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, um, And we was really good at it. We was known within... Um, the dance industry to kind of be the, the best team to be, And to be honest, there, there wasn't anybody that ever did beat us, to my knowledge. And, um, yeah, it was just great. And that's all I wanted to do when I was older. You know, I, I thought when I was a kid, I had my whole life panned out. I thought I was going to grow up to be the world's greatest dancer and live happily ever after. Of course, that didn't quite happen as, um, as things um, later developed,
0: You say things then took a turn. What was it that stopped you dancing? You say it was from when you were about four to 11 years old. Why Mm. did you stop dancing?
1: Well, my grades at school started to slip, you know, with my maths and English. Um, Nothing too bad, but I I just I weren't interested in, in those subjects. So my parents thought it'd be best if they pulled me from competing. Uh, for dancing and to focus on on those um, subjects which was probably the worst thing that they could ever have done and that was it I just found myself moping around at home all the time and I lost all my ambitions I lost my hopes and my mum just encouraged me you know to go out and and kind of be around friends so that's what I did and I started hanging about on the streets um and you know just our local park um we didn't stray too far with um with kids that I knew kids that I'd grown up with you know as a lot of kids do and um I was on um a place called St John's Green and that's um that's just like um some shops, you know just takeaways etc and My parents didn't like me going there because it was an area where my parents knew and it weren't, you know, the greatest place to hang around. There was, you know, always kind of a bit of bother going on there. So uh, I started hanging around there. So my life went from dancing on a Friday night to a bottle of white lightning and sharing 10 fags with my mates um, and having a bit of a a a joint. I started to change as, as a child and I started to kind of meet Um, You know, people that that was a little bit older, not long after my 14th birthday, actually. And a man in a silver car started to drive up the street and he got out and he started talking to my friend. And even though I didn't know him, he didn't feel like a complete stranger to me because, you know, my friend knew him. And back then you think, well, if your friend knows somebody, then it kind of means you know him as well. And I knew his brother a little bit. So when he asked us if we wanted to go for a spin in the car, we, you know, we was quite excited uh, We we didn't see any issue with it. And it was quite cool back then as well to, to kind of be around somebody a little bit older. And that was it. We got in the car and I had no idea, but that was a moment that was going to change my life forever.
0: 14 years old and you were looking for, for, for excitement and this guy came along and, and gave you that excitement?
1: I don't think I was looking for excitement. You know, we was just there being kids, hanging about on the local shop. But, you know, for a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old to, you know, kind of hanging around or being associated with, um, you know, men in their later teens or early 20s, that wasn't unusual for where I lived. That was every normal. Um, you know, not many people would batter an eyelid at that.
0: How did that manifest itself? Because you said that, that one of the reasons your parents pulled you out of the dancing group was because they wanted you to focus more on your education, but your education took a dive and your temperament took you on- onto the streets, hanging around with your friends, smoking joints, drinking drink. And then you got caught up with this guy who was older than you and your friends and like you said it was it was an unusual where you lived how did that take a a terrible turn if it was something that you were sort of willing to do if you like I mean I I, I also caveat that with the fact that you're only 14 years old and so you're still a very young child
1: The grooming process is what I call one of the most dangerous of crimes because it's a silent crime and it happens without you even knowing it's happening. And the grooming process can also be very fun and enjoyable for the child as well. And like I say, you just don't realise it's happening. And, you know, I had this 24-year-old man in front of me. He didn't look like a paedophile because as a child I got taught, um, a paedophile is some fat old man in a flat, masturbating over children at playground or somebody that pulls up in a van and um, offers you some sweets, kidnaps you and you never see your mum and dad again. And, you know, we didn't think p- things like that happened where we live. You know, that's kind of stuff you, you hear on the news or in movies. And he didn't fit the description of what we was taught a paedophile was. Um, he was 24. He was good looking. You know, he had big muscles, big gold chain, nice car. He was funny he seemed just like a a really nice guy but the grooming process happened really really quickly and um, it was only within a few days of me meeting him that my parents found out and of course they weren't happy now i'm 14 he's 24 he's known to all services including the police for being um, a dangerous person he's just got out of prison and, you know, of course, my parents reported that to the police. And I was late coming home, so that's how it started. So my parents would be out looking for me, et cetera. And the police came out to see me. And I wouldn't make a statement at that point. So they said, well, you know, she's making a lifestyle choice and she didn't want to make a statement. There's nothing that we could do, uh, sorry, that they could do. And, of course, I didn't want to make a statement. I didn't know what grooming was. I didn't know what exploitation was. And at that point, nothing um of the untowards so it it happened um you know i was just a, a teenage girl kind of hanging about with a few people having a bit of a laugh that's what i saw it as i saw it as, my mum dad they have just been boring and mardy you know they're overprotective and they don't want me to to kind of have fun i had no idea what the hell was um going on or about to happen
0: and what did happen
1: well, as I say, I, w- I went on to be um, abused sexually, um, physically, and I was also exploited to um, commit crime as well. And it's very clever how um, perpetrators groom children to commit crime because you're the one that's left with a criminal record as a victim. And it also prevents you from coming forward because, you know, when if you're coming forward and telling the police about what's happened, what you're doing is actually sending yourself to prison. Because you know, committing those crimes can uh, can get you in serious bother. So it's very clever how they do that. And I think for for one thing, from Rotherham, well, quite a few things that have been missed. But one thing for me is the criminal exploitation side of it. And even throughout the trials, at least in my case, anyway, he was never held to account for criminal exploiting me. Even though I'm still left with a criminal record uh, for the things that he you know, he groomed me and forced me to do. Um And I think that's um a case throughout the country as well. And I know we're starting to talk a little bit about it now. You know, I've had a campaign going for a few years and um, there's been campaigners come before me, you know, and, and try and raise this issue. And unfortunately, children are still uh, being criminalised for uh, being forced to commit those crimes. You,
0: you mentioned that, you know, when you met this this adult and you were a child, he groomed you into committing crimes and that he sexually exploited you tell me a little bit more about that i mean in terms of the crimes for example what was it that that this adult made you do or, or convinced you you should do
1: um so he took me to things such as robberies armed robberies and basically what he was doing was he was grooming me to be i suppose a mini version of him so um, there was different um, kind of crimes like the the armed robbery at the post office, etc.
0: Well, tell me about that. What was this armed robbery at the post office? what What were you What were you made to do?
1: So I started going missing from home when I met of Saint. and sometimes it would be for days, sometimes it would be for weeks, and sometimes it would be for months. So I remember on one occasion I was missing for two months at a time, and there was one occasion when um, I was missing around my birthday. And um, he came in to a property that I was staying at that belonged to a woman. because there was a lot of women that would help him out as well. And um, he said, I've got a surprise for your 15th birthday. And that surprise was he was going to take me on my first armed robbery. And um, so that's what he did. Him and his friend, uh, they went and stole a car. And I sat in the car my job was to be the lookout. And back then we used to have the big police scanners, uh, which were great for criminals because you could sit and listen to everything that the police were doing. And I suppose it was like the police would give you a heads up if, um, you know, there was something going on. So, yeah, my job was the lookout. So even though I wasn't the one that walked into that post office with a gun, you know, printed to someone's head, I'm still an accessory to that and I can still get in a lot of trouble and what he was actually doing was getting me ready for the next armed robbery. But the next armed robbery, he wasn't going to be involved in. So it was going to be me um, and my friends that he wanted to go into that post office with a gun and, um, and rob it.
0: So you were sat in the car monitoring the police's movement while he and a friend went into the post office, pointed a gun at the staff and, and stole money. Yeah. And then you made your getaway?
1: Yes. So when... Um, To my knowledge, um, somebody actually challenged him when he got into the post office. So on that occasion, he uh, left without any money. But that was a post office he robbed quite often. As um, you know, back then, there wasn't the CCTV, etc. and all the the security that we have now. So that was um, a post office that, yeah, that would get hit um, on a regular basis.
0: Were you caught for that crime?
1: No, um the police didn't know about a lot of things um up until me coming forward um and saying, Well actually, I want to tell you everything what happened, um, but there is something I'm worried about, am I gonna be um arrested as well? And so my solicitor had to go and meet with the police and say, Okay, so let's say for example this happened, um, how are you gonna treat her? Are you gonna treat her as a victim? Are you gonna treat her as a as a criminal? And um, in the end, they, uh, they treated me as a victim because, you know, they recognised that actually this is um, a very known thing that criminals do and that, you know, I, I was a child.
0: So on your 15th birthday, he took you to this post office robbery. What was your relationship like with this guy, Arshid? Because up until this point, you kind of talked about the fact that we know that you were groomed because you were a child but you were accepting of the situation not knowing any better
1: I didn't recognize it as abuse um at all not in the slightest what I saw this as was he was my boyfriend and on you know the occasions because as, as time went on you know it started to become very violent etc but um you know in the beginning he was like Prince charming he treated me you know like a queen you know if it was anything that I wanted or needed it it, it would be there and You know, we did normal things. We went out for meals. We went to the cinema. We, you know, we went shopping. We even got a little house together at one point. I was 15 and we had a house together. I was pregnant at 14. Um, Pregnant
0: at 14 years old.
1: Yeah. um, On um, that occasion, I was forced to have an abortion as my mum and dad said they were going to use the DNA, you know, the DNA from the baby to have our shad um, sent to prison. So he wanted me to have. Uh, an abortion so that's what I did but then I got pregnant again when I was 15 and services was involved at this point so social care etc um, and the police but they said he was allowed to have access to me at that point so there was no need for me to have an abortion and I was allowed um to have my baby so my parents put me on something what was called a section 20 and that's when the parent um, holds a parental right still But um, I was placed into foster care and I went into a few different foster placements. I think there was about three. Um, But when I remained um, in my final one, where I stayed for majority of the time, my foster carer and uh, my social worker met him and said as long as I was picked up at the top of the road, I was back for 10 o'clock and they wanted me to go to school because I'd missed out on nine months of school. Then he could see me. So, you know, he even, he was treated as, as my partner and boyfriend, and I was never treated as a victim. I was treated as his girlfriend, his mistress, or somebody that were part of his gang and a criminal. Um, he was even allowed to come to all my medical appointments when I was pregnant, so he'd always make sure I'd have a mobile phone, so he was always, I suppose, one step um, ahead.
0: I, I'm shocked by the idea that at 14 years old you fall pregnant for an adult and the social services, the police, and everybody who should be taking care of children don't intervene at that point and realize that you are having a, whether it's consensual or not, um, sexual relationship with an adult. You're underage, you're not, you know, legally you know, in the world allowed to be having a, a, a sexual relationship with, with anyone, let alone an, an, an adult, as the law stood at that point. Why did nobody intervene at that time? Even if you were, you know, willing and able or consenting, et cetera, why do you think nobody intervened? I mean, as you say, you were, you, you know, keeping him abreast of what was happening when you got pregnant the second time. Why did nobody intervene, Sammy, and start sort of realising that you were a child and you were being exploited by an adult?
1: I think there was two things that happened, what evidence has clearly shown. And one was the race issue, because he was a Pakistani man. And I think also people, and not just of the past, but today, think it's absolutely okay to um, abuse children. I think we have a major problem in our country when it comes to rape and and paedophiles. And it's almost as if we have a system um, that supports rapists and paedophiles. And I've actually got copies of all my social care files, my medical records, you know my police um, files, and there was some professionals trying to raise this, and they was getting shut down. So I, I can't sit here and say every single professional and modern was bad because it wasn't. But you know when when these professionals was going to you know people kind of higher up in in ranking order, it was getting shut down. And to actually read how professionals speak of of me and and the situation is quite disgusting. And, yeah, a lot of people was in fear for him. He had a lot of of people in his back pocket. You know, he had a lot of power. So for for people like me, and, you know, there was children as young as 11 years old being um, raped and exploited. And um, we wasn't just going up against him and all the other paedophiles and rapists. We was going up against the entire system. We're talking about an entire police force knew about this. Rotherham Council know about this, charities know about this, and I've got evidence that the Home Office know about this and turned a blind eye. We was going up against everybody.
0: At, at the point, though, that, that this was taking place, and help me understand this, but at the point you were consenting, you were, to some extent, protecting this individual by willingly wanting to have his child, having a, a consensual Um, sexual relationship with him even though you were a child and and didn't know any better as, as as a better way of putting it but but do you think that because you were i wouldn't say protective of the fact of your relationship with this guy but because you deemed him your boyfriend and other people including the authorities and your parents deemed him your boyfriend was that one of the reasons that no action was taken at the time because if you were sitting there and saying you know, he sexually exploited me, etc, then they would have taken action. So how much, uh, I hesitate to use the word responsibility, but where do you see your position in what was happening at the time?
1: Well, I'm a child, so it's not my job to do professionals' jobs. Now, I'll give you an example. um, Because in the beginning, I spent a lot of my time protecting him. And I knew that if I said anything to the police, that may or my family be killed. But I, I didn't recognise the, you know, the kind of whole uh, picture of it. And as time went on, it, it, it got more violent and violent. And then I did eventually say to the police, um, well, actually, I do want to come forward, which I'll get to in, in just a second. But, for example, on one occasion, I was caught half-naked in bed with him when I was missing, and I was the one that was arrested and not him. You know, the, the police knew who I was. Uh, they knew my age. And <laughs> it's so I'm laughing about it because it, it just sounds so ridiculous to me that the fact that I'm there as a child, he's an adult known to all services, I'm off naked in bed with him, uh, I'm missing from home, and I'm the one that's arrested. But as, as time went on, um, I did try to get away from him. And again, I didn't recognise this as being, you know, groomed and ex- exploited. I just saw this as, you know, my boyfriend's being really violent towards me. He's cheating on me all the time. Um, I just want out of this this situation. I just want to get away and kind of make this pain stop. And um, I remember on one occasion uh, when I told him that I didn't want to be with him anymore, he grabbed me by my hair into the car and drove uh, through two parked cars and into a church. Um, I was rushed to hospital. I was pregnant at that point, so I thought I was having a miscarriage. There was another occasion when I tried to leave. And again, we was in the car and he started driving towards the edge of what I describe as a hilltop. and It's a really high place that overlooks all of Rotherham. And he said that if he couldn't have me, no one could, and he was going to kill us both. But at the last minute, he slammed on the brakes. I still to this day didn't know how he didn't go over the edge. I got out of the car, I was physically sick. He took me to the edge and said he was going to throw me off it. I was that scared, I wet myself. And, you know, at that moment, I honestly thought, this is it. This is where my life ends. And he put me in the back of the car and had sex with me. So Nothing had happened at all. And I remember that moment I was just laid there. And the only way I can describe it to you is like I was a dead body on a slab in a morgue. And I remember crying, but it was it was like a silent cry. And I had this pain there constantly, um, all the time. And I knew it was from him. I knew I had to get away from him. It was just so difficult to do that. And I remember on one occasion when I said to my foster carer, you know, if he rings, I, I don't want to speak to him. I don't want anything to do with him. And she says, oh, you may as well just speak to him. You know, you're going to get back with him anyway. You know, at, at that point, she should have said, OK, then let's put something in place. Let's move you or Let's, you know, contact the police. Or, um, you know, there there was times when I was, you know, kind of reaching and screaming out for help from people. And um, when I got to 16 years old, I'd given birth to my son. And our share of was, um, he'd just come out of prison. He'd, uh, <coughs> he'd kidnapped somebody and stabbed him, I think about 11 or 12 times. And I bumped into him because I'd managed to get away from him at this point. And um, he kept trying to, to say, you know, I want to get back together, etc. cetera. Um, and I said, no. So he got me by me through and he hung me over the top floor balcony in the shopping centre. And fortunately, his friend and his brother was there and dragged him off. And um, he was screaming and shouting, you know, making threats. I was with my son. My son was only a couple of months um holding in the push chair. He, he kicked over my son's push chair with my son inside it. He called him a black bastard. He said he was gonna set us both on fire and watch us burn. Um, you know, saying some really nasty threats. So I grabbed the push chair and I made a run for it. And that was the first time I said to police, okay, I'll go on record and I'll I'll tell you everything, everything that I know. And the police officer came out and he said, um Well, what what do you expect? He's got every right to do that. you stopped him from seeing his son. And I remember my dad, you know, going absolutely, you know, mad at this officer. And I put an official complaint in against that officer about how he treated me. And to make that statement was a complete waste of time because nothing happened. Now, at that point, I just want to tell you, 16 years old. Here I am with a baby with DNA as evidence. On that occasion, there was video footage because it's in the shopping centre. There was a witness there that would also have said um, they wanted to do a statement. That was a perfect opportunity, you know, to have something done. Um, And again, he wasn't even spoken to. I asked for a court order. Somebody at the home office actually turned around and said not to get me um, a court order because it would provoke him and make him worse, and I've actually got the evidence of that in writing. I had to go out myself um, and get my own court order uh, for him not to come near me um, and my son. And in the end, um, I had to cut off from everybody, most of my family I couldn't even have contact with, friends I couldn't, because he was just targeting everyone to get to me. You know, we had to kind of move property. And again, when we moved property, that wasn't to with the help of housing from council. Um, my dad had to find out to, you know, kind of fund everything. Fortunately, he was in a position where we could do that. Otherwise, we would have, you know, kind of been in some deep trouble. Because he had, at one point, somebody outside my house 24-7 watching me, sending people to the door. The police came out. They said, well, you live in a road, there's nothing we can do. And it was only when I kind of just pretty much went into hiding and he got shot that I was kind of left in peace.
0: Arshad got shot, did he?
1: Yeah, he, he got shot and paralysed.
0: Just before we get on to, to what happened next, I mean, there was between you and this abusive guy, your child, you, you'd given birth to his son, your son, age 16 years old. How did those dynamics play out? Because there was always this constant reminder or this constant glue uh, between you and the father of your your child. How did that play and what did you feel about that at, at the time? Because as much as you were trying to get away from this individual and seeking and looking for help from the authorities, your child was, was, was always there.
1: My focus was um, my son and I didn't want my son to be around that. And that's why I stopped or Shad from seeing him. I think at one point I said, if you want to see him, you've got to go into a contact centre and, you know, it'll all be watched, etc." Because, again, even though I didn't see this as exploitation, I kind of just saw him as my now ex that, that was really violent towards me. But I kind of saw it at that point as well. He's still my son's dad. Um, so I offered him the contact centre and he said, well, if I can't have contact with you, then I don't want to see him. Um, But social care, and again, I've still got the files um, for this, said that um, my son wasn't allowed anywhere near him because our shadow sin was a risk to children, which, um, and very rightly so, I agree with that decision. But I was also a child, so were hundreds of others' children, and they they missed that. Now, I mean, now my son's nearly 20, but when, um, before he was 18... Brodham Council and and the system as such, because this is what happens, actually invited Arshad Hussein to come to the family courts and to apply for either custody or visitation to my son, despite him being in prison for 35 years um, for what he did to me and other children. In fact, I think, you know, you might have to double check this, but I'm sure that Arshad Hussein has got the highest sentence in the country for these kind of crimes towards children. And they still offered him to see my son, despite them even saying their own words, he's a risk to my son and to me. Um, So that's another campaign that I've got going on through the family court.
0: Let me just take you back to when you were 16 years old. Um, You you say Arshad was was shot and paralysed. And that was the end of your relationship.
1: Well, I managed to kind of get away from him um, a few years before but he was still at that point when he got shot trying to find me etc.
0: So at what age were you when your, I hesitate to say relationship but your connection with Arshad ended? I was
1: um, 16 and he, so that was 2001 and he got shot in 2005.
0: What changed Sammy uh, at what point did the situation change from you seeing this guy as your boyfriend and you being in a relationship with him where you'd had a child and then suffered the abuse that he exerted on you what changed to make the situation what it later became which was a court case involving lots of individuals
1: it took me a very very long time to recognize that actually this this man weren't my boyfriend but um I was a victim of exploitation and um I was about 27 years old and um you know throughout life I'd suffered really a battle with mental health depression trying to kill myself etc and I always knew there was issues I, I I just I couldn't put two and two together um and, and make sense of everything so but um yeah I was about 27 years old and I'd come back to Rotherham at this point because I left Rotherham for a very long time. But um, I came back to Rotherham and my sister called me and she said, um, look, well, you know, I've been approached. There's a solicitor that wants to talk to you about what happened with you and Arshad. Um, you know, it weren't normal what happened. It wasn't your boyfriend, et cetera. Will you talk to her? And I said, no, you know, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to put it in this box um, keep it there and just just kind of, I suppose, ignore it and just move on because it sometimes feels like it's easier to do that rather than you open that that box and everything comes out at you and you have to deal with that. And I remember I was in a petrol station one day and, and this for me is kind of a really key, key moment um, and really important because I was in a queue and I was reading a newspaper and I think it was our local newspaper and it said... Three Asian brothers had befriended up to I think about fifty-something girls. And these girls thought that they was their boyfriends. Now, for me that was really important how it was worded, because it was worded in a way I could understand it. Now, if that would have said three Asian brothers had sexually exploited fifty-something girls. I, I went not have batted an eyelid because I didn't know what exploitation was. And I picked up the newspaper and I knew straight away it was Ash and his two brothers. Um, I mean, he has uh, another brother. He was sentenced in a different trial. But they were so prominent in our town, you know, and it's no exaggeration when I say it that they did run Rotherham. And I took that, I went home and that was it. That was, I suppose, the start of my... Breakdown of realizing I was a victim. And I felt really stupid because, you know, I'm looking back on everything, what was happened, and looking back, it seemed so obvious. And I started thinking about how many um, there was. I mean, I had no idea it going to thousands, but I kept thinking about all the other girls and I thought about all the stuff that happened. And then I thought, well, what am I going to tell my son? He my son is. I'm going to have to tell him that me is his mum has been raped the man he calls dad was one that that did it and that he, that's you know how he was born from from all of that and I hate depression and as I said I'd, I'd attempted many occasions in life to to end my own life I'd slipped my wrist I took tablets I drank bleach tried hanging myself Um thankfully none of that worked and I'm here to tell the tale but I hit a really, really dark place. But I was fortunate on this occasion to get a good social worker called Nikki. She was one of the per- first professionals to actually say, I think something really bad's happened to you, you should contact the police. And I heard about a journalist called Andrew Norfolk at the Times newspaper. And I told him my story. And I said, Here you go, that's all the evidence. Now, Andrew, just to give you a little bit of background about him and the Times, he had been covering bits about Rotherham and about what had been happening throughout the country in regards to exploitation and uh, professionals turning a blind eye for a few years before I came along and contacted him. So we're talking about someone that's already put it in the national media. And what Rotherham's council's reaction was to find out who was leaking that information. In fact, I believe they spent £20,000 trying to find out who the whistleblowers was, because as I say, there was other people before me trying to expose this. And they was more bothered about protecting their reputations than the fact that children was raped and exploited. And Andrew published my story in August 2013. And I honestly, hand on heart, thought I was going to be ignored because the other whistleblowers had been ignored And what I was able to do was something a little bit different as a whistleblower. And I was able to name two people, the amount of evidence that I had. One was Arshad Hussein for what he was doing, and one was the deputy leader of Rotherham Council for his um, involvement. And that was it. Andrew pulled my story, and it triggered the criminal investigation. So they opened that and it opened up every investigation into South Yorkshire for past child abuse. And it also triggered the Alexis Jay report, which showed that a minimum, and we now know he's over 2,000, um, children was groomed, abused, raped, trafficked, tortured, and some of those children even murdered. So if there's one thing you know, I'm proud of throughout everything that's happened in my life, is you know, coming forward and what my story achieved. And that now meant that something good was going to happen. And um, some of us, and I, I know that not all of us are going to get justice, but some of us are going to have a chance to get justice and to bring people to account for, for what they did to
0: us. And, and they call this the, the the Rotherham scandal, do they? Is this what the national media painted as, as this kind of exploitation that was going on? And Arshad was at the centre of this. What what came of of all the information from the whistleblowers, including yourself, was, was a court hearing, court trial, that involved Arshad and a number of other individuals. And they were convicted and sentenced to imprisonment for child exploitation, rape, sexual assault, etc., etc. What can you tell me, just briefly, in terms of when you became a whistleblower alongside the others, that culminated in this big trial as well as the national media's interest
1: so when Andrew published my story, the police agreed to go on record with me um and basically do do some interviews and ask me what happened. So that is what led to the big court case. And it took two and a half years. You know, that's how, how many witnesses was involved in this. Now, the first trial with Arshad Asane, his brothers, um, there was eight in total, but two got found not guilty. So that left six. So as I say, Arshad Asin, um his two brothers, a taxi driver um, and two women for their kind of role and things as well. And in total, they got sentenced to 102 years in prison. Now, Arshad was the highest sentenced at 35 years. He was the ringleader. And the trials have been ongoing ever since. I can't tell you how many um, have actually been, but South Yorkshire Police dealt with, I think it was the first three. And then national, the National Crime Agency took over, and it's the biggest child abuse investigation in Britain. So that's gonna go on for, for many years, I believe.
0: And you were, from what you've told me and what is obvious, the first of many of these victims, um, especially with Arshad. Do
1: you mean do you mean in coming forward or being abused?
0: Of, of being abused. I mean it started when you were fourteen years old, or were there other victims before you?
1: Oh yes, there was many, many victims before me. Um I weren't one of the one of the first there was there was lots of us and some of us will never come forward um some of us did um in the trials but yeah there there was many of us and i suppose i was at the uh, well in in the court case they tried to do it in a timeline of order and i was towards the back i think there was only i think about one or another one after me so the court case went on for about two and a half months so, you know, it was, I can't even put into words what, what it's, it's been like in the last eight years alone, Never mind, you know, the, when the actual abuse was, was going on. And I continue to campaign today because I realised that I had something very powerful, you know, that was my truth and my voice. And when I was speaking out, because I was even speaking out while the investigation was ongoing, you know, people's coming forward, there was changes, not just in Rotherham, but around the country. And I thought you know i've now got this platform and i think that when you have a platform it's important to use it for as, as much good as you possibly can
0: and what do you use that platform for today
1: and um, so i've got several campaigns so that's around family courts sexual exploitation itself criminal exploitation and to even just to, to talk about it to raise awareness and to encourage people to come forward but what? what's important in that when people are coming forward is that the system is fit for purpose because it's not. And I I feel really quite guilty, you know, about how, how many people come forward and they'll contact me and they'll say, oh, you know, this is how badly I've been treated and this is what, what's happened. And, you know, I've heard so many people say it's easier just not to report it. Um, and what a lot of women don't know is if you have got children to abuse and, and through um, abuse, those perpetrators can and could get custody of your children um so it's important that when we're reporting things we know exactly what we're getting involved in and that the correct support is in place etc but um you know basically anything i can do to to make our country a safer place to live for kids
0: it's a frightening prospect that these uh, sex offenders can get access to the children that are born out of these exploitations. What, what do you say to those young women and young men, I suspect, who, who like you at 14, 15, 16 years old, didn't listen to their parents, couldn't see through the woods that, that what was happening to them was, was exploitation rather than, you know, an exciting life of being involved in, relationships with older people etc i mean what's your assessment of vision now knowing what you know as an adult as opposed to what you know as a as a child because there will be all over the country and all over the world young girls like yourself who are infatuated let's say by the older guy or the the, the trimmings that come with slightly older guys to, to young children so what's your message in that regard
1: I'd say to people that have already been through it, there is life after abuse because many people feel that's it, that's the end of life. And I always say that no matter what you go through, you can overcome things. You can go on to, to do or be whoever you want to be. And I do think it's really important that we get into schools and I've met with the Department for Education. I'm actually working on something at the moment for children to educate children about what's going on so they can see the signs, so they know what's happening and who they can talk to if this is happening, but also to teach kids not to become perpetrators. You know, we constantly say to, to people how not to become a victim, which is crazy. Let's start and teach people not to become perpetrators and not to hurt people.
0: You, age 14, 15, 16, didn't listen to anyone when people were telling you, if they were telling you, or if the signs were there that, you know, you were underage, you know, that's key here, you were underage. But but despite that, you were not listening to the advice, if there was any advice or, you know, what difference does that make to young girls today who are in the same position as you, maybe in a relationship? I'm really trying to get my head around the fact, how, how can we make that difference? I mean, headlines that talk about the Rotherham scandal and the exploitation of children and uh, and the paedophilia that went on in, in that particular case, you know, is a lot deeper than just your case. You know, it, it was widespread, not just in Rotherham, but it's been something that's been exposed in other places around the country. But I suppose the key question for me is when somebody as young as yourself is saying, I don't want to take any action, it's my boyfriend, he's not exploiting me, he's not doing this, and the authorities are listening to you, has the law changed or has there been changes where it doesn't matter what a young 14-year-old Sammy saying at the time, that the police and the authorities can, should and are now required to intervene and do something to stop what happened to you happening to other children
1: i think first of all what we need to remember is you know in in how we can make change i mean I, I could go on all day about what we need to change first of all we need to remember that these are children and it's not their you know their fault their responsibility etc there can be a victimless prosecution. Now, I'm not going to sit here and kind of go into all the ins and outs of what the law is, because I'll be totally honest, I don't know the ins and outs of the law. That's kind of not what I, I campaign around. But when there is evidence there that there is a child being harmed, then that is up to professionals and adults around them to do something about that. That is not up to the child. You know, the children. Their their brains aren't even developed properly yet. Children don't, well, I certainly didn't. And, you know, the kids that I know of, of today, they don't always understand consequences. I was very fortunate to have a family behind me trying to fight for me. They're children in care that have absolutely no one. They're children as long as young as nine years old. It's not okay for groups of people to rape children and say, well, actually, it's a lifestyle choice, or, well, actually, you know, they seem to be enjoying it, et cetera. You know, professionals are trained and are paid to protect children. So go and protect them.
0: Where are you at in your life now, Sammy? I mean, are you through the other end? I mean, you've talked about your involvement in campaigning to bring about changes to influence government policy in this space. But outside of that campaigning work, where are you in terms of your relationship with with your kid, especially the kid that was born from the relationship you had I say relationship but what happened with you and Shad at the the time because that's still in existence I mean where are you in your personal life now?
1: I'm trying to kind of get some kind of normality in my life and because when I exposed Rotherham you know I honestly can't put into words what it was like but it it was almost like a circus my life never stopped and with campaigning I was speaking 20 to 30 times a day um, and I have done for you know, the eight years now of how I was raped in, in order to, to, you know, to, to campaign and make change. And what I've had to do is just kind of take a step back from that because I always say campaigning saved me, you know, because I've been able to talk about it. It's it's educated me in things as well as a parent. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely more educated in safeguarding now. But I'm just trying to get back to normal. My sons, um, like, which I, I don't speak much about, my children but my son's life is is a battle for him he has uh many demons that he's he's still fighting just as we all do you know i i do as well but i i just want to kind of focus on kind of having a normal life as as sammy and as mum rather than just as sammy the campaigner i've got two children in total uh, my youngest he's um he's another 15 he's just doing his mocks at school so he's just got two results back he's got an a and an a plus he's doing really really well um, we just bought a new puppy. <laughs> so um yeah, we're um we're we're doing good considering I think what, what we've been through. And, you know, like I said earlier, there is life after abuse. It's certainly difficult. I'm not gonna sit here and say that it's been an easy ride. Um it certainly hasn't. Um and every day I wake up and I feel like I have to fight for something.
0: It's such a challenge, isn't it? Because after what you've been through, it would be nice to know that you can just get on with your life. I say get on with your life, but you can put the past behind you or where it needs to be. Arshad's in prison where he deserves to be, as are his co-defendants who exploited young children um, and abused them in in and around Rotherham. Is there anything that we've not talked about, Sammy, that you want to mention before I I bring this to an end? Interesting as it is.
1: I think it'd be good just to kind of talk about some of the issues faced as a whistleblower and as somebody that's spoken out. But for me, what I find staggering is just how difficult it's been for people like myself as a whistleblower, but also as somebody that was was raped. So, you know, I've kind of got the two, two things in one there. And what I find so baffling is why... Some people have such a problem with people like myself speaking out. So um, I don't understand why it's so hard for people to to be able to speak out the threats that we get and why people want to stop us.
0: And is that from the community in which you exposed what went on or, or are you talking about the media or are you talking about the authorities?
1: The media have actually always been quite respectful um, towards me as a person. Relationship-wise, have always been okay with me, but for me, I've had more trouble from either victims themselves or professionals, which I never quite prepared for. I was expecting all, all the trouble to be. From the rapists themselves. But I mean, if you think in Rotherham alone, it's a very small population. I think there's about roughly 270,000 people in our town. Now, there's over 2,000 victims. So you imagine how many perpetrators they are. Now, you imagine all those perpetrators have got brothers and sisters, mums and dads, aunties and uncles and friends. And I was the first one to open the criminal investigation. So I've had a lot of people blame me, even for trials I weren't in, because, you know, I I, I opened that door for everybody. So if you think, I've pissed off a lot of people in one town. Probably half the town have have got an issue with me. And, you know, there's there's sometimes I've gone out, even when I've been out with my kids and people have been screaming and shouting, you know, calling me a slag, saying they're going to smash my face in. Um, So when people approach me, I don't know whether I'm going to get that approach or whether I'm going to get somebody that comes up to me, hugs me and says, thank you for everything that you've done. So it, it can feel a little bit uneasy um, at times going out in Rotherham. And, you know, when the media came to, to Rotherham, it was almost as if things turned into a competition for some people. And I'm not speaking about everybody when I say this, but there was book deals being offered. There was money being thrown about, you know, possible drama and um, series TV deals and, and all of that. And, what started to happen is the exploited started to become re-exploited and some professionals was running around trying to get as many victims on side as possible because if you had those victims and survivors on side, especially ones that was talked in the, the media, that was going to make you look good, you'd, you know, you'd get a better um, career etc. So um, yeah, it, it's been really difficult to, to deal with that as well and to read some of the comments that i aimed towards at my son because of how he was conceived. People need to be ashamed of themselves, is is what I'll say. The only thing um, myself and other people have done by coming forward is try to put rapists and paedophiles in prison to make your children safer. And unfortunately, um, some of us have been absolutely terrorised, threatened and even attacked in the process for doing that.
0: Shocking. That's shocking to hear. My podcast is called Second Chance. Does Second Chance mean anything to you, Sammy, in any way?
1: Yeah, it does. I think that um, for me, I think there's always a second chance at life, and you know, I've I hope that's what I'm I'm going to get now. It's never too late to to kind of change or um you know to change what path you are. on, No matter what you've been through in life, that that doesn't necessarily mean whether you've just been exploited. It could mean and um, you know, if you've been on drugs, <clears throat> etc., it could mean anything. There is always second chance.
0: On that note, I am going to say thank you so much, Sammy, for for coming on and sharing your your story. Um, and I am sure you've heard it many times. People saying sorry for what happened to you and all the other victims that have gone through what you've gone through. But also, thank you for for being the whistleblower, one of many whistleblowers who were prepared to to come forward so that people could find out more about what was going on, not just in Rotherham, but in other places. And and that prompts the authorities who should have done what they did for you later in life when when you were a kid. And hopefully that will will drive them into doing more to help children who were as young as 14, nine years old, as you've mentioned. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Sammy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. Have you rated and reviewed? If you haven't, please do. It helps. It really does. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe.